listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, the gentleman on my show today, his band just brought out a new album after 11 years called Heaven Comes Down. And, and the single, Just Like a Rose, the chorus is stuck in my head. And, and it occurred to me that back in 1987, in this month, I saw him open for Aerosmith at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. My guest from Dawkin is Don Dawkin. How you doing, Don? Doing good, boss. I remember that gig. Actually, there's a, you know, of course, there's always bootlegs. And that one of my favorite bootlegs is the Spectrum with Aerosmith. It was a really good quality, good sound. It was it was a great show. It was fun. That was a great tour because, you know, that's when they came back raging with permanent vacation. So it was a great tour for us. Now, now, as an artist, how does it make you feel? Like, I, I'm talking about your new album, which I love, but in the same phrase, I can talk about I saw you 36 years ago. So it shows you of lasting, lasting power. When you think about it and look back at it, how does it make you feel as an artist? Because so many bands have disappeared, and you're still there. Your, your fans were waiting for this album. How does that make you feel? Well, I'm happy, of course. It took a long time, and... You know, we actually finished the record a year ago, and then before that, we had COVID, so we couldn't get together and work because uh, you know the bass player Chris and BG live in Connecticut, John Levin lives in LA, I'm in New Mexico. It was a little tricky trying to get this record done when we're all all over the country, but um, you know we did our best. I'd say you know obviously COVID was a terrible thing, but. froze and that was our goal no filler you know we've all bought records i'm sure you've bought records you hear this great song on the radio or the video and you buy it and then you say mm, some of the other songs are not so good so that was my goal is to every song to stand alone and be a really good song and i think we achieved that you know our first video fugitive came out just eight weeks ago and just hit 700,000 views. That's pretty damn good for the for YouTube, you know. Now, now what what makes you decide to put an album out? You know, you, you sit there, I mean, that the title Heaven Comes Down. There's a lot of shit going on in the world right now. And is Wait. that something that that guided you to coming up with that title because as I'm an old school album listener, a lot of times albums would have a title track, but you don't have a title track. You have the title the title name now, where did the name come from and what made you decide for this focus? Well, it's an older song I wrote in the 80s called When Heaven Comes Down. I've always had a habit of, you know, we did Lightning Strikes. Mean, we, we've done other records, you know, it's not our first record in 11 years. I mean, we did Lightning Strikes Again, The Lost Tapes, Long Way Home, Hell to Pay. You know, we did a lot of, we did a lot of albums in the 90s that just, you know, wasn't a popular time for our kind of music because the grunge music kind of took over and people seemed to be shying away the radio from what I would call straight up rock. We're not a metal band. We're not a pop band. If anything, I'd say we're a schizophrenic band. <laughs> you know, like you said, we got a song like, like a rose or, or you got, you know, in my dreams and the stuff everybody saw on, on MTV. But then we had our dark side, like kiss of death, heaven comes down tooth and nail, lightning strikes again. So we had our heavy side and our quote-unquote commercial side. But 
um, yeah, we, we put records out during the 90s. They just didn't get a lot of promotion. But I finally said, you know, I want to make one more record and I want to make it as good as possible because this is our last record. You know, I'm not going to make any more records because I can't. Because <laughs> I don't know if you saw the press, but my right arm got paralyzed in surgery. See, it's uh, screwed. That's all I got. So I can't play piano or guitar or bass anymore. So I said, well, we're just going to have to fight through it, you know, to get these songs. Luckily, we had such a huge catalog of songs from the past so we could find good parts we liked. And we did it. And I'm really ha happy with the record. Now, how has your writing process changed over the years? Because as you said, this album, I mean, just like a rose, I love, and then it'll be, you come out heavy in the beginning, and then it slows down, and I want to get to Santa Fe, because that's completely something different. It's, it's a great song, and it shows that, you know, you've moved and you're down there now, but how has your writing process changed? Have you changed as a writer? Have you evolved? Because like anything, as we get older, we evolve, but sometimes we creep back into our old habits. Well, that was very conscious on my mind. I didn't want to just repeat what we've done in the past. We've already done it. You know, I didn't want to do it. I mean, we had a lot of record contract offers and they'd all say, well, we want to, you to do a record, but we want it to sound like Tooth and Nail meets Under Lock and Key or Back to the Attack. And I said, I can't do that. You know, I can't. I've, I've gotten older. I'm hopefully more mature. I hope my writing's gotten better. And I said, no, I'm going to write what I write and whatever comes out of the universe I don't understand record companies. I guess they think you get up in the morning and have coffee and start writing a song. It doesn't work that way. You know, I'm the worst, you know. <laughs> My engineer, Bill Palmer, would come up to the house and to the studio some days, and and I'd say, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing, man. You know, I, I have to wait. I don't know how to call it. I don't want to use the word God, but when I'm inspired, I'm inspired. When I'm not, I'm not. And now that I've left L.A., which is a whole different environment, living up on a mountain in New Mexico, I mean, I look out every window and all you see is mountain ranges. It was more inspiring to be able to just look out windows and it just was more inspiring, you know, so it made it easy to write the lyrics. And of course, John was writing music and, you know, the world's changed. You got Pro Tools now. You email your ideas back and forth and I pick and choose what I liked. Now, it's funny. Why did you leave L.A.? Because I moved back to New Jersey from L.A. six years ago. I was out there for 18 years. I know you're from there, but what, what made you move? What made you choose? And what made you choose New Mexico? Uh, many it's peaceful. It's quiet. It's a radically different environment. You know, you're, I'm in the high desert, 8,000 feet. That's a lot. I'm pretty high up here in this mountain on this old church, as you can see in the background. When you look at the ceiling. Oh, wow. It's pretty crazy. That's that's just the ceiling of my dining room. So it's like an old chapel. Um, I lived there my whole life, you know. I, I, I think Santa Fe uh, is kind of like a four-minute song of my life. The lyrics are self-explanatory, you know. Born in L.A., never saw a reason to live, leave, traveled around the world, missing home, decided to realize I want to leave. Uh, L.A.'s changed, you know, like every, I don't know about Europe or everywhere else, but yeah, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. Between the Ukraine war, the Hamas, the Russians, the homeless people sleeping on the streets, the whole world changed. 
may have seemed to change. I thought when COVID was dying down, the world would go back to normal, but it didn't. You know, I was in L.A. a month ago. They're doing a documentary about the band right now. I think it's the same director that did The Dirt for Motley Crue. And when I got to L.A., I was just shocked. You know, there was people just sleeping on the streets, covered up in these plastic tarps, and the world changed. So I just said, I'm, t I'm done. I want peace and quiet. I'm getting older. And I just wanted to live up in the mountains where I could look out the windows and see nobody. Right. <laughs> Instead of, okay, you know, you got, you go every five feet, you got a house, a house, a house. I didn't want to see any neighbors. I don't, you know, I'm not like a, I was dropout, but that's the song Fugitive that came out that just got 700 hits. So when my band came up to see me and they said, when you say you live in the boonies, you really do live in the boonies. <laughs> and I said, yep, that's what I wanted. I want some peace and quiet. I don't want to look out and see any neighbors. And uh, so the world changed. And obviously when the world changes, your lyrics change, your, your ideas change, your melodies change. Uh, you know, and then that's, it's a, just a different environment, you know, and it, and it made it easy for me to write the record. Well, tell me when you sat down and wrote Fugitive, what, what was, what was the idea that sparked you? Cause I know you can't sit down. I have a background in stand up comedy. Jokes aren't like music. A joke can just pop in my head. I can go up on the stage. If it sucks. Okay. It didn't work for music. You have to sit down. You have to create it. You have to develop it. What was the sparking, what sparked you about Fugitive when you sat down and penned it? And why did you choose it to be the first single off the album and the first track? Um, actually, it was just because I was having a conversation with uh, one of the last songs we wrote. You know, I was just having a conversation with the boys. Uh, we had a show in New Mexico, you know, and uh, I said, well, how about everybody comes up a day early and you can see where I live now? It's hard to explain, you know, my driveway's a mile long and I'm very isolated. And they said, I think John said, man, you really are a fugitive from life. You, you just, you just dropped out, you know, you're living in Beverly Hills and then you were living on the beach your whole life. And all of a sudden now you're living basically isolated. And, and he said, well, you really are a fugitive. And, and, and like you said, when you write a joke, something sparks you. And so you tell the joke of something you hear or something you see, sometimes the joke works, sometimes it doesn't. You move on to the next one. But when he said, boy, you're like a fugitive from life, then I went, hmm, that's a good uh, that's a good chorus for a song, Fugitive from Life. And that's what sparked me to write it. Now, why did you pick that to be the first single? Because it rocks. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, historically, I think most bands do that, Dawkins too. We would always end the record with a burner. Tooth and Nail, Lightning Strikes Again, Till the Living In, Paris is Burning. You know, we always used to end our records with a really heavy, upbeat, you know, kicker. And then we, we come out, we come up and we end the record with me just playing acoustic guitar and singing. It's a very unusual way to end a record, Santa Fe. You know, it's just me and a guitar playing, you know, and talking about my life in L.A. and how I decided to leave. So most bands wouldn't do that, I think. They usually end with an upbeat song. So, but I didn't even know if the record company would like that song. I just wrote it because I was inspired to write it from a conversation I was having with my producer. And and uh, he had the microphone on and he was saying, how in the hell did you end up in New Mexico? And I said, well, 
I just, I don't know, you know, I, I'm here. So I was talking about being in L.A. my whole life and that lifestyle, the rainbow and the whiskey and the good days, as they say, the bad old days when you're playing the whiskey with Van Halen and Quiet Riot. And, you know, I grew up in that genre of 77 to 82. Uh, I think Van Halen came out in 77. And it was the heyday of Hollywood. And now it's over. It's finished. You know, the owner of the Rainbow just passed away a week ago. Uh, so that's probably going to be over. And they own the Rainbow. And everything just changed. I just figured it's time for another. At the fourth quarter of my life, I just figured I need a new environment, something more peaceful, go hiking with my dogs and trimming trees instead of hanging out at the Rainbow, you know. So uh, that's kind of how it came about. It was just a comment that John made when he saw the house and he said, you bought a church? <laughs> I said, yeah, four years ago. He goes, yeah, it's, it's like a damn church. And I said, well, I'm going to turn it into a house. <laughs> and uh, I did. It took four years. So that was the inspiration for Fugitive. Now, shooting the video, because as you said, you come from the heyday, man. You know, the beginning of beginning of uh, MTV. I try to tell people, you know, when MTV was came out, like we would sit around the TV and wait for a video. And we got turned on to so many bands. What is it like now shooting a video? Because I'm sure back in the day, the budgets you guys had were, early days were huge. But now videos yeah. can be shot for a smaller video. Do you like shooting on a smaller scale like the Fugitive video, which has the effects, which looks like an old school video, or did you like the big blow it up type videos that the budget was coming out of your guys' money, which people don't know? I mean, what, what do you prefer now? Well, that was funny you say that because, you know, I, I'm not a very social media guy, and I see hundreds and hundreds of bands, and they're sh shooting their videos on an iPhone now or a GoPro, and they're very low budget. And yes, we had huge budgets in the 80s, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I said, well, we're going to, but this is our last record, because obviously I'll never play guitar again. You know, that's, that, that, that ship has sailed. My arm's paralyzed. So, And I said, I say we just do a completely over-the-top video. And it just happens to be there's this famous art exhibit in New Mexico called Meow Wolf. And uh, they let us go in there and film on their day on when they were closed. That's why the video, you look at the video and you're like, every scene I'm, we're changing, 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 different environments. I'm in a trailer, I'm walking down a neon forest of trees and walking through a house. I mean, it's pretty off the hook. But I said, let's, I don't want to do an iPhone video. You know, I get it. Uh, I do believe that the new generation's attention span is very short. I even talk to my kids in their 30s and, you know, they watch a video for a minute and they go to the next video and they go to the next video and they go to the next video. And I said, I want to try to come up with a video that holds their attention for the entire song where there's just all these environments changing constantly. I've had, I just came off the road two days ago and met a lot of fans and they said, I had to watch that video four times because there's so much going on, you know. So, but I got lucky uh, because I know people up here that are uh, like Chris Ayers, who directed it. He works with Robert Redford's company, uh, well-known director. He has a TV show called Dark Winds. 
Uh, he's a Native American. The whole show is about that. So we got a movie producer to come in and film the video. And then I brought out Tom Strickfadden, who had done three docking videos 30 years ago. He's retired. I called him up and said, can you fly into New Mexico? I want you there because you know the band. So I got the best of the best to come and film that. And it's a technical thing, but I didn't want to shoot an, a low-budget video. We filmed Fugitive and 5K cameras, which are basically movie cameras. So I called every friend I had that's in the movie business and said, can you get us some, like, full-blown movie cameras, you know, 5K, you know, 4K, and baby booms and steady cams, and, and everybody stepped up to the plate, you know, and said, yeah, man, let's make a like a mini movie, you know, you know, super, you know, you see it's high quality, beautiful colors, uh, it's clear. And we actually sat down in a production meeting with all the directors and we watched about 20 videos of all the new bands that are still in my genre putting videos out. I won't say who, but for me, I just thought the videos looked very cheap, like they just had a $3,000 budget just knocked it out because like I said, I think the attention span these days when you have so much content, you know, how do we make a video that'll hold people's attention? And that was it. That was our plan is to try to make a video that would stand up. And I guess we achieved it because it's got 700,000 views. You know, these days you get a thousand or 2000, everybody's happy. Well, I think I think because you know the generation we want to see those videos. We don't we don't want to see we don't want to see like you said an iPhone crappy video. We want to see a video that we sit there and go, okay, this sort of reminds us of back when we watched videos. Right, we got really lucky. I remember when uh, MTV came out, and you remember you remember that. Um, you know, they just showed video twenty four hours a day, right? Yeah, that was great. It was videos, one video after the other, after the other, after the other. You know, so it was 24. I remember Wild McBrown once said he was he was uh, watching our video, Breaking the Chains. And he goes, man, they're showing that video every 45 minutes because that's all they had. You know, they didn't have 24 hours of bands. They only had eight, you know, so that was kind of funny. You know, I said, well... You know, so we got a lot of exposure when we're getting played every 45 minutes. It kind of put us on the map. And but then now uh, you turn on MTV, as you know, I, I have no desire to watch uh, 90 Day Fiance and uh, 16 and Pregnant and the Jersey Shore with a bunch of people drunk and throwing up on each other and i thought what happened to mtv man i i i haven't even put it on you know i don't even like i know my tv i don't even know where it is on the dial because you know now everything you speak into your tv i've never said put on mtv and it's just it's funny so it's just changed so i gotta ask you what got you into music because everyone has different influences when did you get into music when i got into it yeah what what got you into music well by accident, I guess, but my father was a jazz musician, and he had the Jerry Dockin Orchestra, and he, and he played into his 80s. You know, he was a singer, trombone player, and they played like the, you know, classic 40s rock, you know, back in the day with Benny Goodman and 
all those things. He used to do that kind of music. I mean, he used to go up once a month and play for Reagan, President Reagan, for the end of his life because he was getting you know, Alzheimer's and all that. And his wife would have my father's four-piece band come into his office and play uh, Benny Goodman and all those 40s jazz cats because she's trying to spark his brain because he was starting to lose it, I mean, to be honest with you. And... Uh, and he said he'd start tapping his feet, you know, and he would, you know, it would kind of, you know, he, would, he knew that's his music. Reagan was an actor, and he came from the 40s. And and so I guess you could say it's genetic because my mother was a pianist. My daughter is a classical pianist. I started playing piano at six, and she's amazing she played some everything from mozart to this and that and when she got older i said uh enough of the classical man so once you start playing some jazz i gave her some jazz music and blues music and you don't have to play you know mozart and beethoven on the piano every day so i tried to steer her toward uh you know more of the different way jazz and and contemporary on the piano so my daughter's a pianist I was a pianist, I'm a guitar player, but as far as how I got into music was totally by accident because, um, you know, I was, I was in an orphanage till five and then from the orphanage I was in foster homes till I was 14. So there wasn't much to do and if you, you know, you're probably too young to remember that, but you know, back in the day there was only three channels. I know, I know. know. We in Philadelphia, we had three. Well, we had six. We had three, ten, three, six, ten, seventeen, twenty-nine, and forty-eight. And I tell people, oh, we had twelve. That was PBS, but we never watched that because we, we right. PBS was more educational, but you know the famous thing at you know twelve o'clock or one o'clock that that thing would come on like a picture of an Indian <laughs> in a in a in a chess pattern, and it's just going, you're done. You know, they go off the air at 12 o'clock, you know. So, um, you know, nowadays, Jesus, I mean, there's a thousand, got Netflix and Hulu and Apple TV. You've got so much content, you know. But like when I was growing up, there was no TV, really. I, I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember we'd had rabbit ears. <laughs> and I tell that to a young kid, they go, what's a rabbit ears? I go, <laughs> Well, it was an antenna on top of the TV, and you had to keep moving it around to get the channel to come in, or you put some tin foil on the antenna to get a stronger signal, you know. And you know, and all the homes had these giant antennas on their on their houses. You know, there was no cable, there was no HBO, Cinemax, Max TV. It didn't exist when I was a young kid, so I was bored. So my inspiration was just to go to school, like sixth, seventh grade. I went out. I was probably like I don't know, ten years old, and my mom bought me a guitar uh, at a hawk shop for a hundred bucks. Steers used to make a guitar called a Silvertone, really cheap guitar. Came with a cheap amp, and here you are, fifty years later. People are like, "We love Silvertones." You know, it was a really piece of junk. You could buy it in a catalog, and they mail it to you. So my inspiration was to come home. There's no television. You're living in a foster home with eight kids. Everybody's running around, you know, there's bunk beds in the bedrooms, you know, we're just crammed into this foster home. 
So I would go in the garage because I couldn't play in the house, and I would literally set up this little amplifier next to the washing machine. <laughs> and I go in the washing machine, and I have my little record player that had 45s, and I would just play records and try to learn the songs. And that was my outlet. You know, I didn't want to, there's no television. When you got eight kids in a foster home, everybody's fighting over what we're going to watch. You know, and usually it was like the Flintstones are on at eight o'clock on Saturday. <laughs> the Flintstones were on main TV. That was a big thing, you know. I know. It was, it was, it was actually written for adults. And when you look back at it, you go, oh, yeah, I get it now. I get it. She's using the charge cards. I understand that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Flintstone, they say it's a kid's cartoon. But now if you watch it now, it was more like almost adult content, you know. And, uh, you know, that's what we watched. So I wasn't into that. I was into either books or I just sit in the garage next to the washing machine, put on the records, and I would just practice and try to learn the songs. I, I remember on my sixth grade, uh, sixth grade, the last day of the, the school year, the teacher uh everybody had a project and they let us rehearse in one of the classrooms and we played for the class and i remember i played gloria and louie louie because they're so simple it's just da 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 i mean you know one finger so we played louie louie and gloria and you know it but it inspired me i just enjoyed playing you know but i didn't have these delusions i guess you could call them that i'm going to be a famous rock star i'm going to be famous you know i, I remember i went to my dad's after i got our first record deal and it was for like eighty five hundred dollars breaking the chains eighty five hundred dollars they gave me a contract for twenty thousand euros and i said to michael wagner my man i said what's the, what's that in u.s dollars <laughs> he goes that's yeah, about eighty five hundred bucks then i went Oh well, that's that's uh, that's about fifty dollars more than I had. You know, I didn't have any money. I was broke. I was in Germany, playing clubs, and uh, you know, for a long time, because my name was Dokken, a lot of people thought I was German. You know, because it sounds German, and when you bought the record, it said Carrera Records, recorded in Hamburg, recorded in Cologne. They assumed I was German. And I'd always say, no, I'm actually Norwegian. <laughs> we just happened to end up in Germany. So when it came out, that's that's the way it was, you know. And we had no money. And looking back now, as I reflect on my life, I just turned 70. And I say, tell people, I played the same clubs as the Beatles played when they were starting out. If you're like a Beatles guy, everybody knows the Beatles before they made it went to Hamburg and they were playing five sets a night in the Reaper Bond and the Reaper Bonds where all the hookers were. And there was like 10 clubs and they played five sets a night playing blues, R&B. And we got to play those clubs before they closed down. And I remember we uh, that it's funny, the one club we played, I walked in the night before we played, I wanted to see the club and there was nobody in there. There's like two people. And now here I am in Germany in 1979, and I see a guy sitting at the bar with a hat on, and he had a big mole on his face. <laughs> and I said, if I didn't know better, that looks like, let me kill mister. 
So I walked up and said, hey, are you let me kill mister? And he goes, he goes, yeah, you buying? That's what he said, you buying? <laughs> and I went, yeah, he was the first famous person I'd ever met. And that was right when the Ace of Spades came out after he'd left Hawkwind and was exploding on the European scene. So he was the first celebrity I ever met. And we sat there all night and I tried to keep up with him on the drinking. I lost. <laughs> Got those tall bar stools, man. I was falling off the damn thing. So, uh, and, you know, and there, they don't have it at 2 o'clock. He stopped drinking. He'd drink 24 hours a day. But Lemmy uh, was the first person I ever met that I felt was famous. And I went to that club because I wanted to go down and see their bathroom. Because in their bathroom at the top 10, the Beatles had signed their names on the wall. And then they got famous, of course. And then they put plexiglass over it because people are going to try to put graffiti and I wanted to go down and see Ringo and all those guys and see all their names. For me, that was really exciting at 24 years old, you know. So that's kind of how I started, you know. I just, but I honestly, hand to God, I didn't think that I'd ever make it well, or get those platinum records you see behind me on the wall. Well, I was going to ask you, though, know, how did you find out you had such a good voice? Because, you know, everyone thinks they can sing. But you know, I always say, first of all, you can't teach someone to be a front man. You know, it's something, no. there's not a class you can go, oh, yeah, here, take my, learn how to be a front man for 75 bucks. It doesn't happen. How did you know that you could sing? And then how did you teach yourself or just acclimate to being a front man? That was totally by accident. Uh, I never saw myself as a singer. I never saw myself as a front man. Uh, I saw myself as a guitar player. And we played a show by the L.A. airport. It was called The Proud Bird. And we were the support band for Van Halen. They hadn't made it yet. And the first time I saw Eddie Van Halen play, I said, I will never, ever be this good. You know, because of that two hands on the neck. I didn't even know what he was doing. I thought, you know, I was in the dressing room going, I thought they only had one guitar player. Obviously, I can hear two guitars playing. So I look over the balcony and I'm going, nope, they just got one guitar player. But Eddie was a genius. So, and the joke was, years later, we actually had a lead singer. He kind of looked like David Coverdale, the long blonde hair. And he didn't show up. And I said, oh, shit. We're getting ready to play with Van Halen. No singer. I'm calling him up. I think he got uh, stage fright. So I was playing with Juan Crucier at the time that went to Rat later on. And a drummer named Greg Peck. We were a three-piece. And I said, what the hell are we going to do? You know? And he goes, well, Don, you got to sing. And I'm like, I'm not a singer. I'm a guitar player. <laughs> so I sang. You know? And that's kind of how it started where I started slowly, slowly shifting over to a singer. Uh, we did our first tour at Bloister Colts in America. Uh, I was still playing guitar, guitar and lead vocals. And, you know, but then when you see David Lee Roth, he was so gregarious and off the hook and running around with his crazy clothes and this and that. And, you know, he kind of changed, to me, David kind of changed the whole idea of being a front man but when you're playing guitar you're stuck on the mic you can't leave the mic i'm playing guitar i'm singing i'm like i can't run around the stage and do all the things he did 
And slowly after that first tour of Blush to Cold, it was Blush to Cold, Aldo Nova, and Doc, and we got 30 minutes. And, um, you know, and then George had joined the band, and George was a brilliant guitar player. And I just said, well, I guess I'll put the guitar down and be a front man. And I wouldn't say, I, I think it took me several tours to even get used to being on the stage. And I'm thinking, what do I do when he's doing the solo? I'm just standing there, you know. I had to figure out how to be a front man. Now, tell me what the Sunset Strip was like back at that time. We talked about it earlier because I moved out. I missed it. I moved out, I think, in, in the mid-90s. I moved to L.A. So I missed that whole scene. But encapsulate what it is was really like because you were someone who was involved in it. We can see documentaries. We can have people, you know, sit there and go, oh, I used to hang out and go to clubs. But was it as insane as they said it was? Yes. I mean, I've seen the documentaries, too. Like I said, I just did a, a documentary about two months ago. I flew to L.A., and they wanted to interview me at the whiskey because that was the place. But the truth is, everybody talks about the whiskey and Gazaris and the Starwood. There was probably 15 clubs in L.A. I mean, there was a ton of clubs. So you could literally play the whiskey one night. And then a lot of people from the Valley, as you know where the Valley is because you're from L.A., a lot of people from the Valley didn't want to come up to Hollywood. So they had a club called the Rock Corporation, and they had a club called the FM Station. So you'd go to the Valley and play those clubs, and you could play Hollywood. Then you could drive another 40 miles into Orange County and play Myron's Ballroom and all these places, the Wood Sound. I mean, you could actually make a living at just playing clubs every weekend and pay your rent. And that was pretty cool. That's why we played with Van Halen a lot, you know, and then... They got their record deal, and the whole world changed. I own it that, you know, I had records, but when I bought that first Van Halen album, my jaw fell open. I mean, as you and me and everybody did, we were just like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, Ted Templeman produced it, and it, it had a whole new sound. It was big and huge, and it was loud. And then Eddie does that solo eruption, and I'm just like, Oh, my God, this is our competition. I mean, they just they just killed it. And that's the way it was. But we could actually make a living just Orange County, the Valley, Van Nuys, Ventura, Redondo Beach, where I used to live. There was a club there called the Fleetwood. And we actually opened up for Journey. That was fun. Before Steve Perry joined the band, he's still the keyboard player. I can't remember his name now. Greg he Raleigh. was the singer. Greg Raleigh. Greg Raleigh was still singing. I think Steve had joined the band, but they hadn't they hadn't put the first album out yet. So Greg Raleigh's playing singing, and you got all these great musicians, and so it was an interesting time. I, I've seen all the the documentaries. I think some people obviously exaggerate about what it was. But if you fast forward, I went to Germany in 79, did my first tour. Then I went back to late 80. And when I came back, we couldn't get a gig. Nobody would book docking. And I'm like, what the hell? We have a following, you know, a couple hundred people. But it all got a new wave. 
and Devo and Blondie and and all these bands were playing at the whiskey and all that. They didn't want rock because New Wave was the new thing. And that's because of MTV. You know, I want my MTV, you know. But um, I have to get a lot of credit to MTV because they weren't playing our video every 45 minutes. Maybe we wouldn't have got successful. I don't know. But when I came back and went, what happened? There's no rock bands. And Van Halen had moved on and their album came out and went like bazillion triple platinum, played the US Festival. So I said, well, we're screwed. We have no place to play. So, you know, I went back to work. I got a job. I worked in a body shop fixing dents and vendors, you know, and painting cars. So it was a different time. And then slowly, you know, the rock scene slowly came. Then it was punk. I remember going to see Black Flag and St. Vitus and the Weasels and all these cool punk bands. That became popular for about a year and a half. And then the rock thing... I think what the mistake was is that when Van Halen made it, all these bands started showing up on the Sunset Boulevard. Poison. I think they're from Ohio or something. And all of a sudden these guys show up with huge hair and Aquanet and glammy clothes. And I think David Lee Roth influenced that. And they all came to L.A. thinking, we'll go to L.A. and we'll play the whiskey or the Starbucks and we'll get a record deal. And that was just stupid because record companies don't go hang out at clubs. They just don't. You know, you submit your demo and maybe somebody will come here and you play. But I saw these bands showing up. And I think you got to give credit to Quiet Riot because they couldn't get a record deal and they were very popular. And then when they got their record deal, as everybody knows or doesn't know, they went into the charts and went to number one and they knocked Michael Jackson after three months. It was Michael Jackson, Michael Jack Thriller, you know? And then they knocked him out of first place. And it says, number one, Quiet Riot. And that's pretty cool, you know? So all the bands thought, we're going to go to L.A. and get a record deal. But it really didn't happen that way. You know, everybody had to fight their way just like we did up, up the ladder. Now, do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? When you heard a Dawkins song on the radio? Because... Was it, were you in L.A. when you heard it, or would you remember? Because a lot of times people say, it's just, you go, holy crap, I just heard myself on the radio. I, I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, 9-11, you know, or when Kennedy got shot, you know, or when something happened. I remember the first time I heard us on the radio, and it wasn't on my radio. We had filmed Breaking the Chains, and the album had come out. And we filmed it at Warner Brothers Studios in Culver City. And I'm a car head. I'm a, I'm a gear head. And there was this 54 Bentley, you know, which is the cheapy version of Rolls Royce. It was white. Tires were flat. Filthy dirty. And I'm, we're walking out of the, the soundstage. And I'm seeing this Bentley sitting there. And I'm like, whose is that? And I asked somebody at the office. And they said, well, some director dropped it off it broke down or something and, he's, and it's been sitting there for 15 years i said you're shitting me right because no that bentley's been sitting there for i said can i buy it and he goes i don't know and they gave me a number and i called the guy and and because they wanted it off the lot and the guy said uh five thousand dollars i went oh man that's a lot of money 
I don't have $5,000. So I actually borrowed money and bought that Bentley. And my brother and I are both uh, gearheads, and we actually were working at a Rolls-Royce dealer cleaning the shop. So I got it running, and I said, let's take this thing up to the Troubadour and the whiskey, and let's drive this Bentley up there and see if it makes it. So we're going down Robertson Boulevard, and I put a stereo in it, and we pulled up, I'll never forget it, and we hear it breaking the chains. And I'm like, we're looking around like, it was the car next to us. And they were blasting, breaking the chains on KLOS, I think. And uh, I remember Mick, Wild Mick sitting there, and he yells out the window, you know, because it was easy, because it was a right-hand drive, so he was sitting on the left, the stern was on the right. He goes, hey, man, you guys like that song? And they go, yeah, it's pretty cool. And he goes, that's us, man. That's us. That's our song. We're in Doc. That's Doc. That's our song. He was so excited to hear these guys blasting, breaking the chains, yelling out the window, that's us, man. And those kids are probably going, yeah, right, whatever, dude. <laughs> and that was the first time we ever heard Breaking the Chains on the radio in the car next to us. And I thought that was pretty cool. Now, everything you've had, your ups and downs like anyone. But give me give me some of the highlights of your career. Because, you know, people, people have different ideas. Like I, I interview a lot of actors, too. And I interviewed a guy yesterday who said, you know, He's a series regular on a TV show, but his highlight was when he worked with Robin Williams. So, you know, people have different things. As a musician and as a person, what have been a few highlights of your career that you really look back and go, man, this is awesome? Well, obviously, the highlight probably is when we did Monsters of Rock. And that was Scorpions, Van, Van Halen, Scorpions, Doc and Metallica and Kingdom Come. And we were playing stadiums, and we had 100,000, 110,000 a day. When I remember at the end of the tour, my manager, Cliff Bernstein, said, you know, you guys played in front of a million people in five weeks. And I went, it was very exciting, you know, and very stressful because you got Scorpions, who I totally idolized. There was Van Halen. Metallica was going on before us, kicking our ass, you know because they were just so aggressive and in your face. So that's a highlight, playing Monsters of Rock. I would say the Aerosmith tour was amazing because they were so nice. And uh, and we got to play like almost an hour. And I remember uh, in the middle of the tour, my son was born. So I get a call and when I tell my kids that in the 80s there were no cell phones, <laughs> they're like, what? I said, no, there were no cell phones. There were no internet. You know, you had to, it was like pay phones, right? So the one, somebody in the production office came back and said, uh, Sue just called and you, know, you have a son. Okay. So I'm sitting there with Steven Tyler. And I'm like, dude, I got a kid, you know? And everybody's, congratulations, congratulations. And she wanted to name him John. And I said, I really would rather not name him a bi biblical name. And I said to Stephen, I said, how about Tyler? <laughs> and Stephen's like, well, if I was going to have a kid, I was going to name him Tyler. I said, well, I beat you to it. <laughs> so I named my son Tyler. That's why his name is Tyler. That's awesome. So before we go. I always like to hear, give me, give me one good rock and roll story. 
you know, and not not the same stuff that people always probably ask you the same questions about this and, you know, oh, did you get in a fight? Give me a good rock and roll story that you don't tell a lot because I always like a good story. Hard to do because, you know, it seems like everything's been said, you know, all the documentaries and, you know, about the whiskey and the rainbow and shit. When we first used to go to the rainbow, we had to pay $5 to get in. And you got two drink tickets. It was mostly like 90% Coca-Cola. Uh, I'll give it, but I've done so many interviews. I like know. 40 last month. I'll give you a good rock and roll story. We were on tour with Twisted Sister when they broke out, you know, with uh, We're, we're Not Gonna Take stay hungry and all that and we were on tour with twisted sister and dave and uh d had bodyguards why i don't know big guys big gnarly new york guys with the new york act hey yo and he didn't like talking he didn't like us he'd always say all right all right girls all right you pussies go get on stage and i'd say excuse me and he seemed to think, he goes, yeah, you're from California, man. I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, we're New Yorkers. We're hardcore. And and this one bodyguard gave me shit every day. And he was a big dude. And I kept saying, man, he's really pushing my buttons. You know, he's poking the bear. But we're on tour. I don't want to get kicked off the tour. So he kept bothering me and, and all of us and calling us girlies because we had the big hair. and. <laughs> And finally, I waited to the very last show and with Chris Twisted Sister. And my whole record company was there. Everybody was there. And what the guy didn't know is that I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> I mean, I actually used to go to Korea. Every tour, I'd go to Korea and study with Master Kim, you know, H3 black belt. And I'd go to the dojo and eat kimchi every day, which is not a good thing thing to eat and you got 10 guys in there it's a little smelly and this guy kept messing with me and i finally said enough is enough it was our last show and he told us something like you pussies you need to get your ass on stage and i said i, I take offense to that and i've had it and he says what are you going to do about it this guy was like six six and i dropped him <laughs> took about 10 seconds i just took his took my leg and just swept his feet out from underneath him put my foot on his chest and said, stay down, bro. And I was really skinny, you know, I was a skinny little fucker. And, and, uh, I dropped him, you know, and I just said, stay down. And, uh, so after that, every time my record comes to, they call me the karate kid. You know, oh, it's the karate kid over here. I watched him drop a six foot six guy from Brooklyn and Donnie weighed about 150 pounds. And this guy was giving him shit. And he goes, it happened in a flash. It took about 10 seconds master kim always said don if you get into a fight and it lasts more than a minute you're doing something wrong <laughs> i'll never forget that you're doing something wrong if it lasts more than a minute you ain't doing it right so but i dropped him i didn't mean you know he just i just i just had enough and uh all of a sudden here comes d and i'm thinking oh shit you know he's gonna be pissed off at me and this and that and i said I'm sorry, D. I go, you're, you're one of your bodyguards just being an asshole. And I said, and so much, and he looks at me, he goes, 
he's not much of a bodyguard, is he? <laughs> I said, no, I just, he came out and literally the guy was on the ground and I got my foot on his chest and saying, just do yourself a favor and stay down till I walk away. Because if you get up, you're going to get hurt. And that was the end of that. So that's a story I've never told in the press. Well, there you go, man. I appreciate it. And Don, I, I appreciate you coming on. The new album is great. People, Heaven Comes Down, go buy it. Go buy a damn album. Go watch the video. 700,000 hits very quickly. Go to YouTube. Look up Dokken. Uh, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over uh, 980 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And go check out Dokken's website. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next Absolutely. time. Absolutely. You've done it. Now 